Thanks for listening to the Hedgeye Investing Summit, featuring conversations with some of the sharpest minds in investing, including Ben Hunt, Lynn Alden, and David Rosenberg, hosted by Hedgeye CEO Keith McCullough. To get access to the other eight Hedgeye Investing Summit conversations and for more great investing content, go to Hedgeye.com. I'm Keith McCullough, and welcome back to day two of our investing summit. Yesterday was quite productive for me in, in these conversations. I, I learned quite a bit, and I love having these uh, discussions. When you go for three full hours with uh, the types of players we have in the game, you, uh, you get an opportunity to learn. So uh, what we like to do is focus on people that are principled people, you know, good people. Uh, on Wall Street, you can still find those, uh, and definitely one of my favorite people on Wall Street, welcoming her, her back, uh, the one and only Liz Ann Saunders. Thank you for making time today. We appreciate it. Hi, Keith. Nice to be here, as always. Well, um, you know, we're going to go through, you know, more of a rapid fire, not like not that we need to speed it up, so to speak. But since you can cover so much ground and um, so many people are familiar with you, I think I've complimented you multiple times, but just to do it one more time, like what you're doing um, in terms of you and your team, uh, just like me, it requires a team to do what you're doing, which is really impressive. But what you're contributing to the community on Twitter every day with its daily process, and I think that that's super helpful um, given the alternative, which is you know, a lot of noise, Lizanne, people can listen to, right? Um, and you do a really good job just staying with the data. You're not like me. You don't go off on some tangent about hockey or something like that. You keep it right up the middle. <laughs> Sometimes I go on dog tangents or kid tangents, but uh, I, I certainly don't go on political uh, tangents. So yeah. that's kept things a little more sane for me. Well, you go with what you love. You know, like I, I have to go with, I, I have this like love hater thing going on out there that I have to sometimes address. But it's, I oh, uh, believe me, <laughs> I, I think we all have a love hate relationship with, uh, with social media. <laughs> no yeah, you, you get what you get. It's just, it's, yeah. you know, I, I kind of think of it. Uh, and you're an athlete, so you get it. And you, you know, in Darien, Connecticut, where uh, you've, you, your kids grew up, you have this intense, like, competitive arena. Yeah, almost too much so. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly, you know, Darien Lacrosse. Um, yeah. But you know, it's 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 one of the best high schools in America for for mm-hmm. lacrosse. And you know, I look at this like this experience on Twitter as. You know, being in the L hockey arena is one thing, but having the dude literally with the popcorn be able to tap you on the shoulder in between shifts, um, that's interesting, right? It never happened that way, but um, it's it's okay. You know, uh, I think it's I, I think I'm finally okay with it. My hair's gone completely white and gray, but uh, <laughs> yours still looks good. <laughs> yeah, well, who who knows what the natural color actually is? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my wife says it all the time. Um, it, it, so just to get, you know, I want to start with this bridging of, you know, in my model, as you know, we have the quads. So we have growth and inflation, rate of change terms, and how they impact the profit cycle. So I want to go through all three. Uh, but for a long time, we really didn't have to address, like for almost our entire career of time for you and I, which is a long time, um, we didn't really have to address the inflation component. Now it's really become, if you look at those, that three-legged stool, it's become everyone's fascination. I've called it a mania. Um, and we're transitioning to where, at least I think, you know, the recession and the profit recession in particular is much more important to your forward-looking risk management and returns. So, one, do you agree with that? Um, and two, if you, if you do or you don't, like, what is the transition that you see here? So I think we're probably 
in the process of transitioning to what I've been calling the temperamental era. And it's just my descriptor for the really the three decade era that preceded the era of great moderation. Um, the the Larry Summers coined uh, term for that. Um, uh, may, maybe the temperamental era will will catch on, and I'll get credit like Larry did for <laughs> that. But that really defined the period from the mid to late '60s up until the mid to late uh, '90s, and it it wasn't an environment of perpetually higher inflation, but it was an environment of more volatility in inflation. It, there was also uh, more geopolitical volatility, economic cycles were shorter, i.e. more recessions, although the growth phases tend to, to be more robust on the upside. You know, fast forward to the 20 plus years pre-pandemic, the so-called great moderation, that was a, an era where everything, I've been using the acronym gelled, everything gelled, yeah. G-E-L. We had cheap access to goods, energy, labor, and for the most part, those ships have sailed. And I, I just think we're transitioning into a very different environment. You know, I started in the business in the mid 80s. So I had some experience with that. Um, you know, I grew up in the 70s. So I certainly had experience with that era of, uh, of volatility. And I, I just think it's a, it's a different backdrop than a lot of investors. Not just the the newbies, the newly minted day traders. It's just a, a different backdrop, and it's something I think we're going to have to get used to. And the last thing I'll say is one of the defining characteristics of those two eras was the 30 years, the temperamental era, was one where for almost the entire period of time, save for brief moments, you had an inverse correlation between uh, yields and stock prices. Mm. Because often when yields were moving up quickly in that era, it was because inflation was out of the bag again, ergo negative for equities in general. You know, the era of great moderation, typically when yields were rising, it wasn't because of a serious inflation problem. It was a sign of improvement in growth. That's yep. a nirvana backdrop for equities. We've now, we, we recently had a, uh, a move back into positive correlation territory with yields and stock prices, but that's moved back to negative. That to me, if it continues, may be sort of the quantifiable signpost that the era is changing. Yeah, I, I would very much appreciate that. Like, I mean, from um, let's just start from an asset allocation perspective. I mean, because there are many more things that I can allocate to as opposed to having this straight up positive correlation yep. where both stocks and bonds go down just to simplify. But and maybe that's why I've, I mean, I have 19 different asset allocations all of a sudden, like today I'm buying investment grade credit, defensive in investment grade credit. You'd have that relationship as well where you know, on days like today, you wouldn't have to be as fearful uh, of the beast that is <laughs> that is that is bond yields uh, or inflation itself. And I guess that's my follow-up question to this. I, I, I quite like that the temperamental because uh, when you say that, and I think about it, you know, within my own thick skull of sine curves and cycles, I, I, I think of that as my kids. Um, <laughs> Because you go from something in yeah. its infancy, you know, I have four of them, but I have two of them that are in the temperamental, you know, stage, which are their teenagers. Um, and you have the other two that, you know, that's still in the infancy. But if we substitute inflation for my children, you know, that's, that's essentially it. We have a, a, we have a base pack here. We're not going to break down below 4%, at least on my numbers on inflation, or much below that. And there's a lot of stuff that happens, like, after right. that, that I'm not quite used to. And I look at my wife, and my wife's like, what's going on? I'm like, I don't know. Maybe we should just stop. We should just 
you know, go for a walk. <laughs> and, and from a market perspective, I mean, you can, you can really look, I think you can look at it that way too. I mean, it's, it's, you know, the volatility, people are like losing their minds because all of a sudden the VIX is at 16, 17. Well, you know, it could be like that, that behavior of our child today could be, you know, 28 VIX like next week. Um, and we're also seeing massive volatility, or, or we have, in the, the fixed income market. So yes. where, whereas the VIX has been somewhat suppressed, you know, move uh, at, at times has been off the chart. I, I think that's another bit of a conundrum here is the there's sort of three different narratives emanating from what the Fed is actually saying, what's, what, what, what's embedded in what's going on in the bond market, and then what you can assume is built into expectations for the equity market. And I don't think all three of those narratives, which are different, can coexist uh, well, in perpetuity. Well, no, no. I mean, and that's what you know, is really whipping people around right now. It's like they can't find their narrative. And if you're right. narrative driven, that's a tough spot to be. You and I are numbers driven. Uh, we're in similar, in, in similar, you know, at least foundational stance. We do a lot of rate of change. If I, I really yep. only focus on rate of change. Um, yep. So that's the, really my question now. Like as we go, I mean, the the place that a positive, an inverse relationship, a positive relationship goes to inverse on stocks versus bonds, is that you know, it becomes more clear to even the Federal Reserve itself that we've not only entered a recession, but we're slowing faster, you know, throughout one. I mean, that's. That's as typical as typical gets, and, and I think that, you know, at least to me, that's why gold has finally broken out and likely breaks yep. out to all-time highs. So yep. what do you think about that? You know, where are you on that, first of all? I think if you look at, um, guys, can you put up uh, uh, slide 14? Like, I'm really low on GDP. Um, and Stephanie Pomboy, who I, I think you know, is I do. pretty close to where I'm at. Uh, Bloomberg consensus has come down towards one. Atlanta Fed, I think, is in la-la land. You know, they're still, if you look at it methodologically, their numbers got a two in front of it because they're, they're really anchoring on the January numbers, which were much stronger right. than March. Um, yep. Where do you fit, like, on that continuum of GDP? Like, are we, how fast are we slowing? Do you think we're not slowing? Like, where are you at, where are you at on that? So let me, let me start with a broader answer in terms of how we've been defining this cycle using the R word. We've been saying this is more of a rolling recession, uh, very unique to this cycle where we had the initial burst of growth coming out of the lockdown phase in the early part of the pandemic fueled by stimulus and that gave a fill up to the good side of the economy housing housing related that's where the inflation problem began but then that then morphed into disinflation on the good side and recession level conditions in many of those areas but we've now had the offset on the services side services mm -hmm. larger employer so that's helped keep the labor market uh, afloat. But to your point about uh, January through March, if you look at really any number of, of data points, particularly those that get influenced by weather, retail sales as an example, the reported monthly, obviously, but if we think of it in the context of, of the quarter, since we're talking about GDP, which is quarterly, it, it does turn out that the January strength had a lot to do, if not everything to do with a much warmer weather. And that provided that lift in January, but then you saw a pretty significant deceleration in February and March when you saw a more return to more normal weather, colder weather. You saw the same thing, but somewhat reversed in a metric like industrial production, mm -hmm. which on the surface actually looked a bit better than expected when it was recently re released, but it was concentrated in February and March in utilities usage. Again, a sign of weather related, Look, you know, peeling the onion back there, 
under the surface, you saw a bit of weakness. So you can you can connect those dots and say, even if the quarter started strong on many of these metrics, it ended undoubtedly on a much weaker note. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's um, it's uh, it's amazing to see, like on the biggest thing where you know, and I want to get into that next. The consumer went from in great shape, you know, the narrative was to in good shape to, well, they're still there to, I mean, retail sales, as, as you most likely well know, just went from, just dropped 465 basis points from January to where it was in March. I mean, yep. that's not like a secret. It's not, a, it's, not a, it's not an opinion. It's a rate of change fact. So it finally yep. got to the consumer, and I want to get into that. But first, I just wanted to show like slide 32 what, you know, what Lizanne alluded to, because we've tried to tell people, like there are like six different things that created this you know, palooza or you know, this, this positive January in consumption growth that took you, those numbers came from somewhere, right? And, um, and I think when you check it down, like on slide 38 through, actually just throw up slide 38, there's five different things you can check down on the, on the U.S. economy from, from manufacturing, which Lizanne pointed out, or industrial production growth as well, to, to confidence falling and CapEx falling. I mean, you, you have all these things happening. So, you know, before we get into the consumer, on that, like, why, why do you think the Federal Reserve is so, like, reticent to just talk about that? Like, why not, why not talk about that? This is, well, they can't be at this age, day and age. I mean, first of all, the Atlanta Fed doesn't get that in their numbers, which I don't get. But, but the rate of change reports, I mean, why not, why not just discuss that we've entered a recession or we're entering one? Well, keep in mind, though, that the R word was in the latest minutes. So yeah, it, it is somewhat rare for the Fed to actually use recession, um, not, not, not specifically as part of a formal forecast, but effectively saying, look, it's, it's coming. Um, I, I'm, I'm frankly really surprised that, that there are still so many adherents to the, the no recession or soft landing I, you don't hear so much no landing anymore. I think that that was kind of a, I, every time I heard it, I, I literally sometimes say out loud, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, so I, I think that the Fed is being as about as honest um, about the situation as you have typically seen the, the Fed versus eras like 2008, where you had Bernanke saying, no, you know, no problems in the mortgage market, no problem in the housing market, nothing to see here. Yeah. Um, I'm, uh, you know, maybe exaggerating a little bit for effect. But uh, uh, so I, I, the, the, the rub for me with regard to the Fed, and I'm, I'm the, this, is not, this is not some brilliant uh, thought here, uh, and the Fed essentially concedes this, is they're, you know, they're extraordinarily focused on data that is inherently lagging in nature, conceding that the effects of their policy changes are very much in the future. But, uh, you know, they're, they're, still, they're still making policy decisions based on um, these inflation uh, stats. And I, I happen to agree with you. I think that, you know, there's always the bullwhip effect, the boomerang, where I think there will continue to be disinflation how how quickly or if at all near term it can get to something with a two-handle um that may be tougher and i don't think the fed is going to do any kind of formal change to its target i think what will be interesting is if we you know maybe get into a three-handle whether you see subtle or otherwise some language change on the part of powell 
or any other yep. number of you know federal open mouth committee members. <laughs> well, you didn't criticize him, but you did. That was you know that was a good Fed joke. Hi, I'm Keith McCullough, and I wanted to introduce you to my favorite product at Hedgeye, the Macro Show. Why is it my favorite product? Well, it's my show. I do that every morning. If you want to get ready for the market day, you want to contextualize all the data, you want to make good decisions, then this is what you should be watching. It's a repeatable process that you can deliberately study, measuring and mapping time series to time series of data. So it's not going headline to headline and getting whipped around. It's actually being so much more dispassionate about it and making good decisions that are data driven. So we'd love to have you on our team. Come join us. Tune in weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern and on demand anytime. Go to hedgeye.com slash research to subscribe. And uh, we have a lot of cartoons of the Fed, so if you want to pop those up, Eric, uh, at, at, at your will. Um, but, you know, the, the yield curve itself actually looks exactly like you like what you just verbalized, okay? Like today I could show it. It's today we're at minus 64 basis points on 10s, 2s. That means the Fed's going to stay hawkish on the short end. And the long end's starting to really have a, a, a come-to-Jesus moment here with the cycle. I mean, that's yep. how the curve reinverts, you know, further. I mean, it, uh, thank you for that, Eric. You, nice, nice little cartoon. By the way, I want to get, I just want to go to slide <laughs> five so I can do what Lizanne did. We do, I do think a big part of this investing summit and just you and I in general, I think we believe in trying to help educate people on like this whole thing called the cycle. You know, so when you said, I don't even know what that is on soft landing. Like this, no, I don't know what a no landing is. I get what a soft landing is. I, I think that ship has already sailed, but no landing, I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, no landing. Okay, so this is, so everything Lizanne and I do, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Lizanne, I'm trying to make the most basic lesson that if anybody leaves this today and they don't know you or I, this is what they come away with. This is being on the right side of the sine curve. That's called an acceleration. You typically accelerate into quad two at the top. You know, when you're decelerating, you are going down from the cycle. The cycle peak was in 2021. You're going down here. So where you're trying to get to the answer that Wall Street, everyone's debating. Correct me if I'm wrong, Lizanne, is like, are you here, 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 here? Right? There's no such thing as no landing. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's, it's where are you here? And, and, and that's one of the... Again, correct anything that I just said uh, if, if, if you'd like to or, or, or expand on it. I mean, the, it, there are things that Wall Street starts to say and Twitter amplifies. I mean, ChatGPT would not, you know, even validate no landing. I mean, so, so just trying to help people talk about the things that actually matter. Maybe try to simplify macro a little bit more because it is quite complex. Well, so I, I suppose if you if you make a generalization based on what people describe as the conditions tied to this, you know, no landing scenario, it would be inflation continuing to come down, but no hit to economic growth from here and or the labor market, sort of this, you know, immaculate disinflation, meaning then the Fed can can pause and I've even said, and then they can start cutting rates, and then we're off to the races again. And I think <laughs> yeah, well, that's, yeah. that, not, that doesn't make, make sense. This idea, and that's what I think is still the disconnect, potentially embedded in what's happened in the equity market, is that the Fed is saying we're going to get to the terminal rate, you know, maybe at May, maybe June, who knows, but sooner rather than later. And then we're going to stay there for a while. Now, that's not a definitive promise because they're data dependent. However... The idea that 
the Fed and and this is built into you know Fed funds futures that the Fed will start cutting rates. That's certainly possible, but not if everything else kind of stays around where it is right now. Right. Um, the Fed, I think, will pause makes sense at some point, but pivot will only come if either there's much more stress in the banking system than what we see in this relative calm period right now, and or you really see a hit to the economy, and in particular, the labor market. This idea that with inflation not anywhere near the target yet, but no hit to the economy or the labor market, what how does that represent a pivot to rate cuts to me the only thing that that would do is really just crush the fed's credibility so right. I, I just think it's I, I think not that we should take the fed at their words that they're going to pause and then stay there for a while but i think that should be the default case save for much more of an economic or banking system disruption that would force the hand of the fed to move to uh, cuts Yep, really well done. Professional indeed. Like, let's so just to take what Lizanne just said. By the way, I use six different points here, Lizanne, for a reason. Those are my monthly data points. You know, my monthly nowcast is 30 different data points. So I'm thinking, first of all, I'm right here, right? I'm right here. The Atlanta Fed is still up here, right? So we have the January, February, March data. So it's slowed at a faster pace. If, I mean, the market may very well have this right on rate cut, because I'm at minus two GDP back-to-back quarters from here to here, right? If you get minus two back-to-back quarters and the Atlanta Fed's at plus two and the Fed's saying we're not going to have a recession until the back half of the year, then the market's trying to pull forward a rate cut because the Fed has to acknowledge you're in a recession. That's how I've tried to interpret it at this point. I think that's how the bond market's interpreting it. I'm certain that that's how gold's interpreting it. But then you got equity people over here in chat G, non-chat GPT land. Like we're talking like way out there relative to what I just went through. And you know, the only thing I'll say there is that the indexes obviously have been flattered by the concentration in terms yes. of performance. And <laughs> you know, it, it is it is a bit like the you know duck on the smooth surface with the with the feet going much more rapidly under this surface there there has been churn and i think a lot of the leadership or lack thereof does reflect a lot of what's going on in the macro environment but there's one other thing just popped into my head when you were talking about the the yield curve is the recent start of a bit of a re-steepening i can't tell you how many times in that short period of time i got um, emails or questions or you know Twitter messages saying this is the definitive sign that there's no recession because the yield curve is starting to uninvert and you know each time I would hear that I think well just look at a long-term chart of the yield spread um, it's almost like I've been using the the weather uh, analogy the inversion is the watch the re-steepening is actually the, the the warning. So this idea that you go to such a deep inversion yeah. and then start to steepen, that actually is saying, okay, you know, recession is sooner rather than later, not, oh, no more recession risk because we don't have a deep inversion anymore. Yes, that it's, it's, as the best soccer player, uh, girls soccer player in Westport uh, always says from the sidelines, because he coaches my daughters, well done. Well done. 
And it's like, you know, did, did you see, did, did we pop up the 10s 2 spread, the long-term chart? Did you already see that? Is that what you're, you're talking about in terms of what I just I did not up? see that, um, but I, you know, I have, yeah, I, mean, I you have, have long-term in your head. charts, and it just shows that it, you actually get a, a steepening in advance of recessions. It's not, yep. it's not a all clear sign when the steepening starts. If anything, it's the opposite. Well, what that, I mean, Eric, if you show this morning's chart that I was doodling on Twitter on the tens to zooms it in a little bit more with some arrows that that's, that's well done, Liz Ann. that's temperamental. That's what that chart has done. That chart has tried to quote unquote steepen as many times as I can count at this point. And now it's just started to deepen and, and reinvert. I mean, that's temperamental, you know, trying to bet on a steepener, uh, has been, you know, a very bad mistake for people that only trade bonds in that sense. So, um, you know, this can, this can and should go deeper the longer that the Fed stays in soft landing or no recession space. That's just, that's just what the curve, I think, the, I think we're agreeing to agree on that. Um, you know, speaking of the Fed, I, I, maybe every Fed meeting these days is eventful and kind of must-see TV in terms of the the press conference yeah. uh, after each meeting but this is a really important one and and maybe we're all repeating ourselves yeah. by by saying it because particularly because a few days later the you know senior loan officer survey comes out but the fed gets an initial read on that and and that may be the the first point we can actually directly hear from the fed with regard to their perspective on what were already uh, tighter lending conditions, you know, yep. that 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 most recent release, which really is only through the end of last year, maybe a little bit into the beginning of this year, showed credit conditions had tightened across the spectrum of, you know, C&I loans and consumer loans into recession territory. And that was well, obviously, pre SVB signature, uh, et cetera. So I think the, the the this credit stuff, which the soft data on credit, the um, you know NFIB um, data, some of the stuff coming out of New York Fed and Dallas Fed suggests things did not improve since then. But uh, I think that's going to garner a lot of attention, as it should certainly in the press conference. Well, this is a I, I was back and forth with with Stephanie on this as well. Slide fifty two, guys. The like phase three of a bear market typically or 100% of the time, it has 100% batting average, CNI cycle kicks in, and, that, and then it broadens. And then it finds its way to what I wanted to come back to on, which is the consumer. So the next slide on slide 53, we're showing the CNI loans uh, rate of change against jobless claims and against CapEx. And again, 100% batting average. So we've yep. already seen the CNI part take off, and yep. what happens next is job loss. What do you think about that? I mean, if I have one thing that people keep coming back to me being bulls, trying to validate the, to your point, seven stocks that equate to the 90% retur- return, uh, not cycle, full cycle return, year-to-date return, which is the cover-your-ass chase performance return. Uh, the, the, um, but again, like, what, what do you say to that, like the, the, the labor market at this stage relative to the CNI cycle? Well, everything points to a continued pickup in claims, both the you know weekly number, the four-week average, continuing claims. In fact, the percentage increases of all of those off the recent lows, which if you look at a long-term chart, that clearly sort of gets biased by the massive spike and reversal that we saw during COVID. It makes the most recent upturn 
um, look less obvious, yeah. but the percentage increase is pretty comfortably within the range of what the typical increase is, not just as a warning of a recession, but really in the beginning part of a recession. I think that what's unique about this cycle is the top-down nature, for the most part, of layoffs. And in most cycles, it tends to be more bottom-up. And what I mean by that is, you know, down the wage spectrum, down the, you know, outside of the managerial, supervisory, elite segments, and then it eventually moves up and, and starts to hit those on the higher end of the wage spectrum into the managerial area. This has been a bit of a mirror image of that. And it's, you know, the the, the layoff announcements have been eye-popping because they're, they're, they're big blue chip kind of companies, not just mm. in tech, but um, in communications area and increasingly in financial services. But it just hasn't led to this huge surge in a metric like claims because we've still got the hiring going on and the services side down the wage spectrum. So it's just another example of this cycle to some degree being kind of some oranges relative to, you know, history's um, apples. But but that's notable. And another reason why that didn't quickly translate into an increase in claims is number one, a lot of the the layoffs that have been announced from some of these major companies, there's severance associated with it. So there's there, there's not that allowance to mm -hmm. to file for unemployment insurance. In some cases, there might be a stigma associated with it, or there isn't that quick need from a uh, from a you know financing your life perspective. So I, I think that's what's unique in the labor market. But I, I think the traditional measures, claims continuing to go up, eventually hitting payrolls, which have already decelerated, the last thing to move up is the unemployment rate. Um, I think it's coming. Hi, Robert McGordy here, Director of Subscriber Development at Hedgeye. Hope you're enjoying our podcast. Start generating alpha with our suite of sector pro investing research products. Dive deep into retail, industrials, technology, and everything in between with exclusive access to the sharpest analysts and actionable ideas on Wall Street. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. Enjoy the rest of this episode. Yeah, and, and you know, a bull of the modern era, like you alluded to at the beginning, the new newly minted day traders or people who have been only been doing this for three years, they think that that's, that's cowbell. They think, okay, you know, people losing their jobs in the Fed, figuring out we're in a recession is cowbell. 100% of the time in the last two recessions that you and I have risk managed, that's not the case. You're absolutely right. So that's easy enough to knock that pin down. Um, back to just one more time on the concentration of the market. I'm very interested in, in your perspective, given Schwab and the base of, you know, your community is different than Goldman Sachs. <laughs> so, right. yeah. you know, the all, all, essentially all individual investors, no, no uh, institutions, no, no hedge funds. <laughs> right. I mean, which is whereas, you know, I was kind of laughing this morning at Goldman's prime brokerage note, which uh, I'll make sure I don't misquote it. It was called um, actually it was intraday yesterday at the high of the day, which is a lower high for the S&P for the cycle. It said um, green shoots of FOMO buying. Get in like get in. Um, <laughs> so and this has really been hard. And when I alluded to the career risk management point from my career perspective and knowing hedge funds and how short term they are right now, that year-to-date number is killing people. Because it, 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 on the one hand, they can listen to a, a, a sober discussion between two experienced people like us and say, 
this is really obvious. And on the other hand, they have to chase. And they quite literally have to. And, yeah. and, and the individual, I don't know if, one, they don't have to. I mean, if not all of Hedge I Nation is, is the type of client that's at, at Schwab, somebody who's made money, wants to compound returns, doesn't want to draw it, draw it down. And then there's the crazies, like I call them the NASDAQ crazies or the crypto crazies. There, I'll put them in their own little community. But what do you think about all that? Like the whole behavioral component from the institutional pressure to the, to the FOMO and the retail community or not? I think there there absolutely is is FOMO as a force, and I think that's part of the reason for the concentration that we're seeing. I also, though, think if you wanted to try to find a fundamental narrative behind why those sort of mega cap, not tech, but, you know, techie fang plus type names got the lift that they did at the beginning of this year was and sort of exacerbated by what started to unfold in the the banking system was, okay, we need to look for well-established companies that have a reasonably long history that for the most part have strong balance sheets that are self-funding, they have interest coverage, they don't need to mm -hmm. access the credit markets or the banking system. And so I think there maybe was that fundamental uh, driver, but uh, you now have the lowest percentage of stocks within the S&P beating the S&P on a rolling one month, on a rolling three month mm -hmm. basis. And that that historically isn't always sort of a negative or Armageddon. It is the case that the last time the percentage was as low as it is now or even a little bit lower was 1999, which is, you know, never a year you want to mention when talking <laughs> about the equity market. But there were times where it was similar in the 50s and the market did uh, fine. But I think all of the work that I do, whether it's sentiment based or technicals or concentration, suggested least a lot more choppiness here. And we oh, we have to remember that market bottoms tend to be processes over time. It's very rare to get a you know COVID bear market, perfect V bottom happened in a moment, off to the races. But you know a lot of the newly minted day traders, their experience is really limited to the post pandemic. Yeah. Uh, era, and I, I just think that this is uh, this is a, a unique environment that we're in right now. I also think that equal weight in general is going to perform quite well relative to cap weight, notwithstanding this latest bout. And in fact, if you look at past periods where you've seen similar concentration, interestingly, ironically, whatever I word you want to use, that has actually not been universally positive for cap weighted, but has been more consistently positive for equal weight relative to cap weight. And I just think with the return of the risk-free rate and the ability to do price discovery again, I think there, we're in the process maybe of reconnecting fundamentals and prices, and it's in general to the benefit of, uh, of active. Yeah, that's a, and, and you've also hit on, and I'll, I'll get to other people's questions uh, next, by the way, if you have questions, just pop them in the queue. They'll get voted up or down. Uh, the you know the higher quality factor exposures that I would expect to work here. Uh, gold is basically kind of like the same thing. Um, but like Lockheed Martin yesterday, it has all the high quality factor exposures that you'd want, including visibility of cash flow stream, pretty much everything you just rattled off. But most people instead think of their liquid molten magma stocks. You know, it's like, but you know, the market's finding those factors, is it mm -hmm. not? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there will be a time where it'll be okay to sort of move down the quality spectrum a little bit um, when you're looking for that leverage to a big pickup in the economy, um, because that's often where there is that ability to benefit from from the coming pickup and growth. I just don't think we're we're quite there yet. And so as a result, I think you want to the way to think about the factors to focus on to some degree is look with a macro lens at what's uh, kind of dear or lacking or, or missing. So I already mentioned things like interest coverage, um, self-funding companies, strong balance sheet with um, higher cash, free cash flow yield. If you're an income-oriented investor, don't just look at the height of the dividend yield, but look for dividend growers. Look for positive earnings revisions, positive earnings surprise. And by the way, I think you can apply screening um, for factors across the entire market, yep. across the tech sector and the healthcare sector and the utilities sector. Uh, I, I just don't think this is the kind of market where you want to make monolithic kind of sector decisions. Uh, I think a, it's a factor oriented market. And I think it's probably going to kind of stay that way for, for a while. And I just think it's a better way to go about making decisions than just making a sector monolithic sector call or two. You know, if I could hit replay on that segment to on every institutional call that I'm at, especially with a generalist, you know, if I'm with like a fidelity generalist or somebody in in in, in Baltimore, they'll be, you know, I, I and I, the reason why I'd replay that is because it really puts the onus on the PM to find those stocks, yep. and it's because we've had this razor burn for the last three years of everything's all or nothing. And in your temperamental, you know, framework, well, there's a lot of new somethings, and they're not the former bubbles. They're not, you know, they're not whatever they're going to be. They have certain factor-based attributes that do well in the, in the temperamental environment. Hey, Kate, here's another kind of new thing. Um, I, we probably talked about this before. I, I I'm really driven crazy by the simplicity around the growth versus value debate discussion, whatever it is, <laughs> it because I think <laughs> I think you can think about growth and value sort of in three different ways. There's the actual characteristics of growth and value, which mm-hmm. that's the way I think about it. There's the preconceived notions of what's a growth stock and what's a value stock. And then there's the actual indexes labeled growth and value. And on that third one, sometimes they can be entirely different. (laughs) And here's a perfect example. On December 18th, so December 19th, the S&P did their rebalancing. Russell doesn't do it until June. So on December 18th, this past December, S&P pure growth, their regular growth index, the stocks can be in there and they can also be in their regular value index. There can be overlap, which, you know, yeah, because lots of stocks have both characteristics. But if you're in pure growth, you're only in pure growth. On December 18th, all eight of the mega cap eight, all the names we're familiar with, were in pure growth. And that index was 37% technology. On December 19th, only one was left in pure growth. The other seven went into a combination of regular growth, regular value. Mm-hmm. And tech went from being 37% of S&P pure growth to 13% of pure growth, with energy the number one sector and healthcare the number two sector. Russell hasn't done their rebalancing. So last time I checked, Russell 1000 growth was still you know, well over 30% tech. So even if you're saying, oh, you know, I'm focused on the indexes, well, you 
sure better know what you're buying <laughs> if you're taking an index approach because yeah. what you're getting in pure growth, S&P pure growth versus say Russell 1000 growth is entirely different in terms of the sector representation. Now I'll get off my, my growth value soapbox. <laughs> no, that, that, it's surgical. I mean, again and again and again, how many of you that are watching this are relatively new to this and want to learn but don't, didn't know that? I mean, it's, it's okay not to know. I mean, I didn't know yeah, that. It's okay I, not I, to know that. Yeah, it's, 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 it's okay. You know, we and can, it's not we, always that extreme. It, it's just, it was extreme this time because of the nature yeah. of, of growth being so concentrated last year in the energy sector. We yeah. don't think of energy as a growth sector, but that's where the actual earnings growth has been. Mm -hmm. No, it's, it's amazing to watch. I mean, NASDAQ of the nine companies, we can show it, nine out of 100 have reported negative 38% earnings growth. I mean, it's a disaster. Right. Uh, energy had 280% earnings growth, you know, in, right. in the in the back half of last year. So, yeah, very well uh, said and surgical again. Hi, Robert McGordy here, Director of Subscriber Development at Hedgeye. Join our entire research analyst team live before the market opens for deep dive investing analysis, our favorite stock ideas, and our risk manager in chief Keith McCullough's macro overlay. Our team of 40 plus equity analysts discuss key market developments, trends, and our high conviction long and short investing ideas. You will not get this granular level of insight anywhere else. A video replay, audio version, and analyst summary notes from the call are available shortly after each live show to ensure you don't miss anything. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. And tune in live to the call weekdays at 7.45 a.m. Eastern. Enjoy the rest of this episode. Okay, question here because we have six minutes left. Um, you know, hi, Lizanne and Keith. Uh, I think you both recently commented on market sediment being bullish and bearish respectively. Uh, could you elaborate on what your views are on this and, and the data um, so that you can compare it with each other further? I did a very, very good question and a good time to ask it because I've seen quite a bit of everybody's bearish, uh, um, you know. I think, it's, I think it's kind of a mixed um, bag here, depending on what sentiment indicators yes. you're looking at. <laughs> um, and in particular, attitudinal measures of sentiment you know, survey-based data versus behavioral measures of sentiment, but then also looking at sentiment as reflected by individual investors versus, say, institutions. Um, you know, in, in general, there's there's a bit more um, pessimism, um, but depends on what survey data you're looking at. It, you know, it is the case that large speculators have a you know very ample uh, short position in um, the S&P, but there are um, some measures, attitudinal measures of sentiment that have actually seen a bit more of an improvement, not into wildly bullish territory. Then you've got things like the put call ratio, which I'm not sure, it hasn't been skewed a little bit um, recently and maybe not sending as accurate a short-term um, sentiment uh, signal. So I I'd say sentiment is is mixed to slightly bearish. The one thing I was saying last year was in June when we had the initial whoosh low, attitudinal measures of sentiment like AAII mm -hmm. were just in Armageddon despair, you yeah. know, record low percentage of bulls, but you were not seeing it in the behavioral measures, be it mm -hmm. put call or fund flows. Um, and I was saying, you know, you, you normally kind of not want to see the puke phase, but you generally see that. You saw that a little bit more in October. Um, now I'd say it's, you know, leans pessimistic, meaning the sentiment is pessimistic, but it, it's pretty, it's pretty mixed. Yeah, I spend 
basically all my time on positioning, you know, because you telling me, you know, from an attitudinal perspective, which is a long word for me, uh, is one thing. It, but how you're positioned is entirely the most important right. thing. And, you know, February at the big lower high in the S&P or the NASDAQ for that matter, I mean, it was the biggest, you know, biggest call buying period in American history. I mean, it's not, people buying YOLO zero days to expiration calls right. and, and Tesla weeklies every single week. I mean, that's not like I'm bearish. It's like I'm just outright thinking that this is the bull market I came into in 2020. Like, it's, there's that. There's also, you know, right now, Lizanne, like the hedge fund prime brokerage data, it's the big, it's, we're in the 100th percentile of gross long uh, exposure on a one-year look back. I mean, that pe- means people have it on. And, and, and 51% net long, which is in the 83rd percentile. So we're like up there. Uh, and then somebody will take, and why I think there's some confusion is people will look at the net short position, futures and options contracts and SPY, or S&P index and E-mini, and they'll say, oh, that's up, that's up a lot. Well, you need that to offset the gross long exposure that hedge funds have. That's their hedge. So I, you know, I, I just gave and my- And if part- you look at you know household exposure to equities, which- um, you know, is is reported quarterly by the the Fed. Um, it has come down a bit, just because that's what happens in a bear market. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's just the way the math of of numerator denominator works. But it is still in kind of the top quintile of historical ranges, where yep. on a forward kind of you know seven to ten year look, it's a message of of not. You know, we're in a we're in a seven to ten year bear market, but you know, curb your enthusiasm if you're expecting really robust historical returns um, over a, a horizon out to ten years or so. Yes, uh, thank you for that. Last question, because that's all we have time for. for unfortunately, I'm going to ask you the question that I hate answering, which is why I have not ans- asked this question. In, well, what uh, if I hate answering it too? We're going to end with no answer. Yeah, uh, that, right, fire that, away. that can happen. You and I can do that. Um, so uh, from Steve Wilson, good morning, Lizanne Keith. Lots of opinions on earnings and the applicable multiple for that S&P 500. I'd, I'd enjoy to hear your perspective. All right. Well, so we think of multiples. Let's just use P-E ratio as sort of this quantifiable valuation metric because, you know, we, we can quantify the P, we can quantify the E. Even if it's forward E, there's at least a consensus that we can use and plug it in. But the reality is... Um, Valuation, and I often say, is as much a sentiment indicator or maybe an indicator of sentiment as it is some sort of fundamental dyed-in-the-wool uh, thing. There are times when investors want to pay nothing for stocks like early 09. And, you know, you got to single-digit multiples, and there are times like, you know, circa 2000 where investors are willing to pay nosebleed uh, valuations. If, you, if, if I was trying to be as quantitative as possible. If you and I have a, a cross section analysis that I do, it's a table that I show that looks at inflation ranges um, over the the kind of modern history of the S and P, so back to the the mid fifties, and not just what the average PE ratio was in each of those inflation zones, but importantly the range mm-hmm. around that because. I think, I don't know who originally said it, analysis of an average leads to average analysis. And I always say shame on anybody that just talks about average, especially when you don't have a, a large sample size. By by definition, the actual outcome is never going to be the average because the average is just the math. And But it suggests that, you know, at 18 or 19 times, 
given where inflation is, that's still pretty lofty. And the problem, of course, is that inflation, all else equal, is still putting downward pressure on multiples. But the fact that the E, forward E, hasn't stabilized yet, that is putting um, upward pressure on multiples. So I think we need to see some combination of inflation coming down more with a sense that it's not a short-lived move down and not going to spike back up again, but an actual stabilization in that forward E. And uh, I'm, I'm not quite uh, sure, but I don't ever look at it and say, you know, as soon as the S&P is trading at a 14.8 multiple, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll launch the confetti and, and say, you know, the bottom is in. It, it's just not as simple as that. <laughs> Uh, if you did that, um, you and I would not have conversations at the investing summit. So um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, <laughs> I appreciate Good you. Point. Yeah, I, I appreciate you in general, but I appreciate you taking a crack at that at that answer. It's so Benoit Mandelbrot who taught me at least, you know, through the textbooks and how he's thought about looking at markets fractally. Uh, it's not the averages of, of things. It's it's the particular things at the particular time in the cycle that right. matters. So. Yep. Um, and, and I know it was a, a, just to close on this, I know it's a, not, a, not an easy day for you and your family and, and you rallied you. and uh, most people probably couldn't notice if that. If anybody no sees my Twitter feed, um, we, uh, we had to say goodbye to our uh, second dog in six months. So we went from three labs to, to one in the last six months. So, um, but, but thank you um, for giving me this uh, distraction for an hour or so, Keith. It's always a pleasure. Well, anytime you want to be distracted. But again, my, you know, my, 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 my thoughts are with you guys. I've gone Thank through you. that, and that's a, that's a tough thing. But you're a gamer, man. Did you, Thank uh, you. Did you play the game for the, for the last 45 minutes? Thanks for spending it with us. My pleasure. She is Liz Ann Saunders, the one and only. Looking forward to having a new conversation with somebody I've not had one um, with on Hedge ITV yet. Lynn Alton. Don't forget to check out HedgeEye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at HedgeEye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by HedgeEye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedge is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedge subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedge Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more details, Please refer to the terms of service at hedgeye.com slash terms of service.